All right. So, number one, you have a homework due. Um, if you have the bubble sheets, I don't need the answer sheets. Please hand them in to the inside of the room, to the, to the uh, middle. Sean and Cayman will be picking them up. doing that. Let me get some things set up here. All I wish I could tell is... So if everyone's got their homework in, we'll try to get it back to you as soon as the scan center will get it back to us. As always, that's a uh, somewhat dodgy proposition. Sometimes they're real fast, sometimes not. So if any of you have got, hey, uh, if anyone's got homework to hand in, hold it up so these guys can know what to grab. Otherwise, we'll pick it up towards the end of class. And then let's begin. Oh, great. Okay. So today's lighting controls, we've got all kinds of fun here. All right, so we'll start out today with a little finger exercise preparatory to Friday's exam. And today's question has to do with the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which we introduced yesterday. The question is, where on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram do you find dwarf stars, meaning luminosity class 5? So for example, the sun is a luminosity class 5 star. I'll give you that as a hint. Is it A, along the upper portion of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, B, along the main sequence, C, in the upper left-hand corner of the, uh, I'm sorry, the lower left-hand corner of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, D, in the upper right-hand corner, or E, do you find them all over the diagram with any combination of luminosity and temperature? So pick your answer, please, A, B, C, D, or E, just like you would on a test, like, oh, say, Friday's test. Let's uh, pick questions before we begin discussing them, please. Should have some quiet here. Give everyone a chance to answer it without discussion. Okay. Having chosen your answer, again, you're not allowed to look at your notes. That's sort of treat this like a test question. Discuss the question with the people around you. See if you agree on the answer. I'll give you about a minute or so to discuss that. And if not, we'll see. Set it right there.
for most of our ads are the, it really is all about the Some people just don't get it. Does it go in ID? A, B, C, D, E. goes in spaces A, B, C, D, E across the bottom. Okay. Under identification number slots, A, B, C, D, E. goes right that. Okay. goes exactly like that. Okay. And then... If they have something else, they're erasing. Yeah. Okay. Please. Okay. That's enough time. So, let's see a show of hands. How many of you changed your answer as a consequence of discussion of this? Hands up so I can see them. I'm just actually okay. So, moment of truth. How many of you said the answer is A? They're along the upper portion of the main sequence, the high luminosity branch. D, they're along the main sequence for dwarf stars. C, the dwarf, this is luminosity class 5. C, they're in the lower left hand corner. D, they're in the upper right hand corner. Or E, they're just all over the diagram. Any luminosity you want. Well, that was interesting. Luminosity class 5 is that diagonal band that runs across the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram called the main sequence. And main sequence stars are, in fact, dwarf stars. White dwarf stars are actually different. They do not have a luminosity class assigned to them because they were, in fact, discovered and recognized to be such things after luminosity classes were defined. They don't act, they're not class 6, they're not class 7, although that had been proposed. Luminosity class 5, Roman numeral V, always means main sequence. Now, this wasn't a trick question. This is actually an example of a question that would go on the quiz, but it's an important point that's often mis mistaken. As we think of main sequence, all stars as being big. In fact, stars like the sun really are dwarfs. They are the smallest of the normal stars. The other stars are a lot bigger. We'll see a little bit of that in the coming lectures. We saw a little bit of it yesterday in talking about the HR diagram. The section along the upper high luminosity tract are the supergiants. The lower left-hand corner is the white dwarfs. The upper right-hand corner is the red supergiants, or the red giant branch, that whole area of very giant stars. So neither of them would have the word dwarf associated with them. And E, well, E was actually part of the main point of yesterday's lecture. Stars do not have just any combination of L and T they want. They have very specific combinations of luminosity and temperature. They do not populate the entire plane. And that's a very important clue to us as to what the nature of stars is actually all about. So this was a fairly, this was an instructive question in many ways for all concerned. Let me uh, hit the escape button. If you'll give me just a second here. Good? Okay. Let's begin with today's lecture. Today, we're going to be continuing along the same line that we began yesterday, but now we've, we've got a different question to ask. The last six lectures have been asking the question, what is it? Describe it. What are the observed properties of stars? 
We very rarely had any resort to how stars work or what their internal functioning is. I didn't ask why do stars shine or what is the mechanism by which stars shine. I simply measured basic properties. How bright are they? What is their luminosity? How far away are they? What are their motions? What are their masses? What are their radii? And what are the relationships among their temperature, spectra, luminosity, and so forth? Those are all questions that began with simple, simple empirical descriptions of the stars. I needed some basis of data. And we found some surprises in that data. And we'll review that today as we begin to talk about stellar structure and evolution starting Unit 2 today. Today's lecture is on the internal structure of stars. We now start having to ask, starting to begin to ask, ask and answer the question, how do stars work? How does a big self-gravitating ball of gas work? What are the physics that govern that? And what do I expect for its appearance? So today's key ideas can be described as follows. What we're going to do is we're going to first review the observational clues to stellar structure. And these observational clues are going to be embodied in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. There's a reason why we spend so much time on the HR diagram and why I'd really like you to be able to make a sketch of that for yourself at any given time and label all the main regions on the HR diagram and their relevant luminosity classes. The reason for that is because the HR diagram is our roadmap for unlocking the secrets of stellar structure and evolution. The whole story is going to be written on the face of the HR diagram. We're also going to introduce another correlation among observed properties, the mass-luminosity relationship for main sequence stars. This is another important clue as to what's going on. And in fact, the mass-luminosity relationship is going to give us a very powerful tool for understanding the question of stellar lifetimes. Well, we have to ask, ask a few more questions before we can use that in detail. We're then going to go on to introduce some of the key physics that governs the structure of stars. In particular, the key piece of physics is hydrostatic equilibrium. It is the balance between pressure, which wants to push the star and blow the star away, and gravity, which wants to collapse the star down into an infinitesimal point. It's the balance and tension between pressure pushing out and gravity pulling in that literally determines the entire lifetime of a star. So it's the essential piece of physics that we're going to need. Finally, we're going to see how the state of hydrostatic equilibrium and the fact that stars are gigantic, incandescent balls of gas sets up a very specific structure in their interior. Stars have what's called a core envelope structure, a dense, very, very hot core surrounded by a lower density, much more extended envelope. And that core density structure, we're going to see that over and over again as we discuss how stars work and how stars evolve. So today we're beginning the first steps of answering one of the most exciting questions of 20th century astrophysics, still relevant to this day. How do stars work? What is their physics? And also going on to answer that third question, how do stars evolve? How are they born? How do they live out their lives? And how do they die? We begin that story today. Now to go, f we're not just simply going to start as this is an abstract exercise. We don't have to. I don't have to imagine a star because the universe is filled with stars. And we've already talked about how to get their observed properties, their luminosity, the total power coming out of them, their mass, their radius, their temperature. These are all observed things about the star. What we've sought are clues among the relationships among these different observed properties that are dictated by the details of stellar structure. And of course, as these properties may change in time, we call those changes in time stellar evolution, how the stars begin to change their appearance. So in particular, the four main physical properties, the intrinsic properties of the stars that matter to us are their mass. How much matter is composed in the star? Is it a tenth the mass of the sun, or 10 times, or 100 times the mass of the sun? What is the star's luminosity? How much power is it putting out? 
And then, of course, the question is, well, where is getting all that power? Where's that energy coming from? And how long can it last before it runs out of whatever fuel source, whatever energy source it's tapping? We ask its radius. What is the physical extent of the star? Is it a gigantic, swollen, low-density giant, or is it a tiny, compact dwarf star like the sun? What is the temperature of the photosphere, the temperature of the last layer I can view into before the star becomes opaque? Because that temperature is what sets the appearance of the star's spectrum. It makes the difference between it being an O, B, A, F, G, K, M, L, or T star. And it changes what the character of the spectrum is. The temperature of the fourth power times the radius squared, we saw yesterday the luminosity-radius temperature relationship, is what fixes its luminosity. It's what determines how much power it has to radiate away because it's a big hot ball of gas. So we've got in these observations all the pieces we need to ask how stars work. And the main correlation that we're going to use, the key to understanding stellar structure is this diagram, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. You should all be able to draw this picture for yourself. In fact, I would say that the first time you run into an HR diagram picture on the test, turn your test book over and sketch this drawing out. The HR diagram plots luminosity increasing on the left axis and temperature going from hot to cool along the x-axis. These are basically O stars, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, L. The same spectral sequence of stars along here, exactly in the order that I want you to memorize. Luminosity increases from a small number, a small fraction, in this case a 10,000 at the luminosity of the sun, to as high as a million times or more the luminosity of the sun. Most stars lie along a diagonal band called the main sequence. It's running diagonally from high-luminosity hot stars to low-luminosity cool stars. These are all luminosity class 5. These are all the dwarf stars. There is a clump of stars in the upper right called giants. They are larger than stars of the same temperature, and we know that because in order to have this higher luminosity for the same temperature, they have to be physically larger. They have to have more radiating surface area because each square centimeter of their surface is irradiating the same amount of power because that's determined by the temperature to the fourth power through the Stefan-Boltzmann law. There's also a sequence of stars, very rare, very high luminosity stars, that are found in all spectral types along the upper part of the HR diagram called the supergiants. I find O supergiants, B supergiants, all the way up to M supergiants. These are just what their name suggests. They are supergiant stars. The largest M supergiants we know of, if placed in our solar system, would extend all the way out past the orbit of Jupiter well-encompassing all of the inner planets. Giant stars tend to only be found at temperatures about 5,000 degrees and less. They tend to be G, K, and M stars. Main sequence stars are all types. I have O dwarfs up through M dwarfs. And finally, down here in the lower left-hand corner of the diagram are these very, very hot but very, very faint, very underluminous stars. That tells me that since they have so much less total light output for the same temperature as main sequence stars, they must be really tiny. These are going to be the white dwarfs. These are objects the size of the Earth, but thousands of degrees Kelvin in temperature. They're very bizarre, obscure objects. In fact, they are not normal stars at all. As we're going to see, they are, in fact, the embers, the leftovers, after a low-mass star dies. So the main sequence is going to be fairly important to us. There are a number of correlations that give us clues as to what's going on. What is it that makes a star a main sequence star? Now, first of all, we've seen that the main sequence is defined as this very strong correlation between luminosity and temperature. 85% of stars nearby the sun lie on the main sequence for the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for nearby stars. 
This luminosity temperature correlation works in kind of the sense we expect. A more, hotter star is more luminous. It's putting out more total energy in that hot stars are brighter, cool stars are fainter, and they follow along this diagonal band called the main sequence. All the other stars nearby in the, that lie on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram but off of the main sequence differ from main sequence stars that we know of so far in size. For example, giants and supergiants, those stars that inhabit both the upper right hand and across the top of the diagram, are physically gigantic stars, much, much larger than the sun for the same t for, in terms of size. But surprisingly, what we find when we see giants and supergiants in binaries is they have the same range of masses as main sequence stars. So a red supergiant star is not you know, a thousand solar masses. It's only a few tens of solar masses. As massive as a star that's a blue main sequence star. And yet it is extremely large and extremely cool and extremely luminous because of that combination. Because luminosity goes like radius squared times temperature to the fourth power. So it's supremely sensitive to both size and temperature. Giants are the same way. Most red giant stars, they're gigantic things. They'd fill out almost to the orbit of the Earth if put in our solar system. And yet they're only the mass of the sun in many cases. Why? What is it that makes the sun different from a red giant? Why do red giants exist? Why do red supergiants exist and blue supergiants? White dwarfs have really strange properties. They're extremely compact. They're the size of the Earth. And yet their masses, when we've measured them in binary stars, on average are six-tenths the mass of the sun. Sometimes they creep up towards 0.8 or 1. Sometimes they creep down towards 0.5. What are these things? They have a very, very small restricted range of mass. Almost all have the same radius, and they differ mostly in their temperature. But they're little tiny, super compact things. What are they? Try to imagine for a second an object the size of the Earth, but a million times its mass. That's what a white dwarf is, and it's hot. Where did those come from? These are key observational questions given to us from the HR diagram we need to answer. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be actually giving those answers. Now. For main sequence stars, it turns out there's one more correlation which is extremely important to us. It turns out that the luminosity of a star is very tightly correlated with its mass in the sense that more luminous stars are also the most massive stars. And it goes in the sense the luminosity is proportional to the mass to the fourth power. This is a good round number. I'm not giving you the exact relationship, but it's good enough for what we're going to use in this class. In words, what I would say is more massive main sequence stars are also more luminous, and the, and the luminosity goes like the fourth power of the mass. So the luminosity is very, very sensitive to the mass. I make a 10% change in the mass of a main sequence star, I get a 40% change in its luminosity. That's, that's really what mass to the fourth power really boils down to. So if I go from a one solar mass star like the sun on the main sequence to a 10 solar mass star, the luminosity is 10 to the fourth, or 10,000 solar luminosities. So this is a very important correlation. It's a very strong correlation. In fact, it's a remarkably strong correlation. But there's one important fact. And I want to make certain you tattoo this one on your frontal lobes. Even graduate students forget this every now and then. The luminosity-mass relationship, mass-luminosity relationship, I said it backwards, the mass-luminosity relationship is only true for the main sequence. It's not true for giants, supergiants, or white dwarfs. Neither, none of those types of stars obey a mass-luminosity relationship of any kind. 
So this is an important clue for us. What is it that's different about main sequence stars from giants and supergiants? Before we said, oh, it's just their size, it's just their radius. Giants and supergiants are just physically larger in radius at a given temperature. But now we found another difference. Their luminosity doesn't know anything to a first approximation about its mass. Whereas along the main sequence, the mass determines the luminosity. That's an extremely important clue as to what's going on deep in the interior of stars. So remember, whenever you apply the mass-luminosity relationship, it only applies if you're talking about main sequence stars. For luminosity class 5, classes 1 through 4 does not apply at all. This is how strong the mass-luminosity relationship is. This is now plotting approximately 80 main sequence stars, which are in binaries. The only exception, of course, being our friend the sun here, drawn as the little target, red there, which is at, not surprisingly, one solar luminosity and one solar mass. Those of you who know a little bit of math background will notice I've plotted this in powers of 10 because of the range of this. This mass-luminosity relationship runs over approximately seven powers of, I'm sorry, eight powers of 10 and two powers of 10 in the mass. So eight powers of 10 in luminosity and two powers of 10 in the mass. The most massive main sequence stars that we have measurements of are around 15 or 18 solar masses. Those are just the most massive main sequence stars we've ever seen that happen to be in, in binary stars. Much more massive stars turn out to be so exceedingly rare, we've never gotten good measurements of them. And in fact, the only 80 solar mass stars we've ever seen turn out to be supergiants, and they don't obey this relationship. They don't fall in here at all. Now, the astute person will notice that the very low mass end, which is also very low luminosity stars, they don't fit on this perfect luminosity proportional to mass to the fourth line. Something's going on in these little tiny red dwarf stars. So I have blue dwarfs, sunlight dwarfs, and red dwarfs. This is basically top of the main sequence, high luminosity hot stars, to low luminosity cool stars. But the red dwarfs deviate. And the reason is something happens here somewhere around 0 0.8, 0 0.9, 0 0.7, 0 0.6, about 0 0.6 to 0.5 solar masses. When a star gets down to about a half a solar mass, something changes. That's why it deviates from this line. What changes is a little bit of a fine detail in its internal physics. We're going to explain on this next week when we talk in detail about stars in the main sequence. So this diagram looks kind of mundane at the outset, but in fact, all of stellar structure theory hinges upon this actual one observational fact along with the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. It may seem like a simple start, but we can actually piece together the internal structure and lifetime of stars just from the HR diagram and the mass-luminosity relationship and some simple rules for internal structure. It's a surprising story that we're going to tell over the next few days. Now, there's another quantity that's going to be somewhat useful to us. It's important to giving us an idea of what's going on in stellar structure. And that is to sort of look at this combination of mass and radius. Okay, why is it we talk about a star being big? When I talk about a big star or a small star, I'm always talking about radius. If I wanted to talk about difference in mass, I'd say high mass or low mass, or I'd talk about how massive it is. So we have to be a little careful in our language here. Whenever I say big, I mean radius. Whenever I mean it's got a lot of mass, I'll say massive. Okay, we've got to be very careful, because often we think of a big person also has a big weight, usually, or a small person has a small weight, a small amount of mass. And they're also small in extent. So we've got to be careful in our language here. One way of measuring the combination of the mass, how much matter the star contains, and how spread out it is, 
its radius, is to talk about it in terms of the mean stellar density, the average density. That's simply taking the mass and dividing by the volume contained within its radius. And I define the radius of a star to be the radius of its photosphere. It's the most convenient radius to use physically because it's kind of that surface where as we look into a star's gas, the gas becomes opaque. So even though I talk about radius like, it's a, like a bowling ball's got a radius, remember the stars aren't solid. You can't stand on those surfaces. It's simply making a statement about the last surface that I can see into before the sun becomes opaque. Now, in the main, on the main sequence, stars have a surprisingly small range of mean density. Okay? For example, the sun, if you take one solar mass and you pack it into a volume enclosed inside of one solar radius, you will only get 1.6 grams per cc. That is, interestingly, about half the density of the Earth or the moon. It's a little bit more than the density of water. For reference here, the density of water is one gram per cc. And the density of air in this room is approximately a thousandth of a gram per cc in round numbers. An O star has a density of 0.005 grams per cc. It's about five times more dense on average than the air in this room. The sun is about the density of water in a little bit. An M5 star, an M05 star, a red dwarf star, is relatively high density. It's five grams per cc. That's about the density of a stony of an iron meteor. It's about five grams per cc. If you pick up a chunk of iron, that's got a or chunk of steel, it's got a density between five and ten grams per cc. So on the main sequence, the density ranges from very, very dense air, five, five or six times the density of the air in this room, to about the density of a of a heavy iron rock and everything in between. That's not a big range of density, because, well, after all, I can demonstrate that range of density with just the air and the rocks in the room. Giants earn their name. They're big, not because they have a lot of mass, but because that mass is spread into a gigantic volume. They have a huge radius. In fact, the density of a typical red giant star is 10 to the minus 7 grams per cc. In round numbers, that's 1 ten-thousandth of the Earth's atmosphere. These things are really lightweight. You could, in principle, fly an airplane through the atmosphere of a red giant. Not very effectively, but you could do it because you kind of burn up rather rapidly. But they're low density. They've got roughly the same mass as a low mass main sequence star, but they're huge. They're spread over a gigantic radius. Supergiants are even less dense. The biggest super, red supergiants, stars like Betelgeuse, that have 800 solar radii and are probably only 5 to 10 solar masses, have densities of like 10 to the minus 9 grams per cc. That's getting really, really low. It's so low, in fact, that we're really starting to actually have va some vacuums on Earth are getting close. To and yet it's a supergiant star. Now, obviously, I'm talking about an average density. It's not what the density at the surface is. It's not the density of the interior is much higher. We'll see in a minute how that actually they gradate. Finally, white dwarfs at the other extreme of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. These are objects that are 0 0.5, 0 0.6 the mass of the sun, but the size of the Earth. To pack a solar mass into an Earth-sized ball, you have to compress it to 100,000 grams per cc. The old saying is, a teaspoonful of white dwarf material would weigh as much as an ocean liner, a big cruise ship. It's an extremely dense form of matter. Hot, far higher density than anything we can create on the laboratory in Earth for more than a, a small fraction of a second in a diamond press. So we've got an extreme range of densities. Along the main sequence, it's pretty normal. 
It runs from a kind of a few atmospheres to about a rock for mean density. But giants are extremely low density, and these white dwarf stars have incredible densities. So something is going on here. This is an important clue as to what the internal structure of these things is like. Now, how do we interpret these observations of density, mass-luminosity relationship, Hertzsprung-Russell diagram? Well, one of the things we get is let's look at the main sequence stars. The main sequence stars have two very strong correlations. There's a strong luminosity-temperature relationship on the HR diagram in the sense that the most luminous stars on the main sequence are the hottest stars. The coolest stars are always low luminosity. Furthermore, there's a mass-luminosity relationship in the sense that the most luminous stars are the most massive. The faintest stars on the main sequence are the lowest mass. So those two pieces of physics are important because what they tell us is that the main sequence stars all have the same basic internal physics to a first approximation. They have all the same governing laws ruling them. Why do they differ? Well, apparently from the luminosity, mass-luminosity relationship, the only thing that makes an O star versus an M star is a consequence of how much mass you have. If you have a solar mass of stuff, you are a G main sequence star. If you have 10 or 50 times the mass of the sun, you're an O or B main sequence star. If you're an M, if you have a tenth of a solar mass, you're an M and you're on the main sequence, you are a red dwarf star. So where you are in the main sequence is determined by your mass. Now we'll look at this in more detail next week, but this is the first clue we have that main sequence stars are all similar in terms of their internal physics. We're going to explore that in more detail, but we need a few more pieces to work with first. Giants, supergiants, and white dwarfs have the odd properties they do. They do not obey a mass-luminosity relationship. They lie in certain regions of the HR diagram, but there is no strong correlation between their luminosity and their temperature at all, very light if at all. White dwarfs have extreme densities. Red giants and, red, uh, giants and supergiants have very low densities. What that's telling us is these stars have very different internal structures than main sequence stars. We don't yet know why they're different, how they got that way. Were they born that way? Or did they get that way somehow? I'll jump ahead and tell you, it turns out that giants and supergiants and white dwarfs are what happened to main sequence stars as they age. And we'll see that story unfold over the next couple of weeks. Now, I keep saying that, I've got to stop saying that. Let's get down to business here. What are the rules? We said that the main sequence stars are all governed by the same internal rules, the same internal structure. The differences are simply governed by the differences of mass. Well, the first of these rules we have to get into is so-called ideal gas law. Stars are big balls of gas, and we actually understand how gases work pretty well in the laboratory. After all, we live on an Earth with a nice big ocean of gas that we go, we go running around in. We rely on gas behavior all the time for various things. Air brakes, for example, and shock absorbers, air pumps, our lungs, all work predicated on understanding something called the ideal gas law. The ideal gas law is an example of something we refer to more generally in physics as an equation of state. It relates all the various thermodynamic properties of a gas to each other. The thermodynamic properties I care about a gas are its temperature, how much internal energy it has. We've already met the temperature in detail. The density, how tightly packed is that gas? Is it a lot of matter pressed into a small volume or is it big, loose, and fluffy? And then finally, the gas pressure. Is it a high pressure gas or a low pressure gas? Now those all seem like unrelated properties, but in fact they all relate together and the relationship for normal gases, for normal materials, 
is called the ideal gas law. And it can be stated very simple. The pressure of an ideal gas is its density times the temperature. Okay, there's some physical constants in there, but I'm going to ignore them for this discussion because we really don't need that information. Now, in words, what this means is if I compress a gas, if I make it denser by pressing on it and pushing on it, two things are going to happen. The gas pressure is going to increase. It's going to resist being compressed. So I will sense that as an increase in the gas pressure, the amount of force with which the gas pushes on me, and the temperature is going to increase. So as I compress our ideal gas, its pressure and temperature both increase. Let's say I, let the, I, I expand a gas. I let the gas sort of spread out a bit. What's going to happen? Its pressure is going to drop, and its temperature is going to drop together. So the two are related. I can't just have any combination of pressure and temperature without knowing something about how that gas is put together. So this is a very important rule for us because it tells us how gases behave. If you push on a gas, it will heat up and, and get higher pressure. If you let off pushing on a gas, it will expand and relax, lowering its pressure and lowering its temperature until it comes into an equilibrium with whatever's pushing on it. Now, what they tell us is how temperature and pressure change in responses to changes in the internal gas pressure. How do I change the density or I change the temperature? How does that affect pressure? And pressure is important because pressure is, if you will, the force with which a gas pushes on its surroundings. Now, the second law of stellar structure is I've got gas pushing out. I have another, what's a force? What's another force that can act in a star? Stars are so big, their self-gravity is the dominant force in terms of trying to hold the star together. Stars are bound together. The gases are held in the star by the self-gravity of all the matter that's packed into the star. Now, we saw gravitational binding energy before. The gravitational binding of an object increases as one over the radius. So if I make an object two times smaller, it gets two times more gravitationally bound. So the tighter and smaller an object gets, the greater the clutch of gravity. Because remember, the gravitational force falls off as 1 over the radius squared for a given mass. So if I take one solar mass worth of stuff and I crush that star down from one solar radius to one half a solar radius, I've still got a solar mass inside there. I've crushed it into half the size, which means eight times smaller volume because it goes like the cube, so I've got a higher density gas, but I've still got one solar mass. I'm now twice as close to the center of that at the surface because force goes like 1 over r squared. So the gravitational force felt by particles in the gas goes up 2 squared or 4. Okay, I've hit you with a lot of numbers, but the basic idea is this. As a star gets compressed and made smaller, it, the particles in the gas feel a stronger gravitational force. Similarly, if I turn it around, it feels a less gravitational force. So to, to review, in words, as a star contracts, as I make the star smaller, the gravitational force becomes greater holding it together. It becomes more gravitationally bound. Okay? If I let the star expand and get bigger, the gravity force will fall off. And it falls off like 1 over the radius. We call this the gravitational binding energy. It's actually easier to talk about energy instead of forces in this case. But that's the important bit. So as a star gets bigger, there's less gravitational force at its surface. As a star gets smaller, there's more gravitational force. Taken together, we talk about the smaller at the same mass, smaller star being more gravitationally bound, the bigger star is less bound. Something has put energy into it to undo the binding. So those are the two laws. Gas pressure, 
which tells us how gas, the pressure law, which tells us how, how gas responds to compression and changes in temperature by changes in pressure, and gravity, which tells us how the gravitational force binding the star together changes as the size of the star changes. Notice what I've been relating. Gravity depends upon what? Mass and radius. What does the luminosity depend upon? What are the two, what are the two physical quantities the luminosity depends on? Not mass, in general. Le radius and temperature. Where's temperature come in? Temperature comes in through the pressure law. So I've now got, remember we have four physical quantities that I'm interested in. Radius, mass, luminosity, and temperature. Which ones have I got so far? I've got the mass and luminosity, the radius and the temperature. They're embodied in the gas pressure law and the gravity law combined. So now I've got all the pieces. The law of gravity relates mass and radius. The pressure law relates temperature to pressure. And luminosity is simply surface temperature to the fourth times radius squared. It's already related through the luminosity and temperature. So now we have to talk about how these two interact. And this brings us to a question of an equilibrium situation. Gravity in a star, a star is a big self-gravitating ball of gas. Gravity wants to make the star contract. It wants to continue to make the star more and more gravitationally bound. Just like any object released in a gravity field makes it want to fall towards the center of the Earth. So gravity wants to make a star contract. Pressure, on the other hand, is trying to blow the star out into space. Stars are in a vacuum. Nature hates vacuums. A big pressure in a vacuum is going to want to blow out into that vacuum. So the gas pressure is trying to blow the star out into the vacuum of space, and its gravity is holding it together. So the gravity makes the star want to contract. It's an inward motion of the star. Pressure is trying to make the star expand and get bigger. Each of these work counter to the other. Gravity basically acts to confine the star against pressure. It holds the gas in and keeps it from blowing off into a vacuum. But at the same time, pressure pushes back on gravity and keeps the star from collapsing into a point, from falling in on itself. So the two of these are in a constant tug of war. Gravity trying to cause the star to collapse into a point, pressure trying to blow the star away into the vacuum of space. Now, if these two come into equilibrium so that the gravity and pressure exactly balance, the state of exact balance we call hydrostatic equilibrium. I have an exact balance between the pressure and the gravity at each point within the star. If the, pressures are, if the pressure gets the upper hand, then the pressure will be slightly larger than the gravity, and the star will actually expand a little bit until the pressure falls off to the point that gravity and pressure exactly match. If I compress the star so much that gravity is very strong, gravity will then increase the pressure, and the pressure will increase in response. And so the two will come into a kind of equilibrium. Now, this seems like a fairly abstract concept, but, but, but when you're in hydrostatic equilibrium, if there's no net force, there's no expansion or contraction. The star is stable. Now, it's really necessary to do a little demonstration of this. And thank you. Let me put up some moderate lighting here. We need an example of a pressure situation. So a good example of a pressure-confined situation, it's hard to make a self-gravitating ball of gas smaller than a tenth of solar mass. And so it's hard to get one in a laboratory room. But here's a good example of a confined high-pressure gas, a toy balloon. 
I'm going to, f the confining force is pressure pushing out. Pressure pushing out tries to make the balloon expand. The confining force is the springiness of the latex. So I've now inflated the balloon. The balloon has a higher pressure than the surrounding air. The latex confines that higher pressure. If I let the pressure off, the latex wins. And the star, the star now, my model star, my balloon deflates. If I increase the pressure, pressure becomes greater than the elastic force. What happens? The star, the star, the balloon expands until the elastic force matches the inside pressure, and they come into an equilibrium. So that's a simple form of hydrostatic equilibrium. I increase the pressure. I have to have a greater elastic force holding it together. And as you all know from elastic bands, their restoration force, their springback force, gets greater the more you stretch them. That's why they're called elastics. So that's an example of a hydrostatic equilibrium. In this case, instead of gravity, I'm using the elastic force of latex rubber as the stand-in. Latex wants to push the balloon in. Pressure wants to blow out, because it's over the pressure of the air in the room, wants to blow into the room. The two reach an equilibrium. And the latex confines the gas. So I now have a high-pressure balloon, high-pressure gas, confined by latex in a hydrostatic equilibrium with the low pressure in the room. Now, what if I wanted to change the temperature? How would the balloon respond to that? Well, it's hard to make things cold even on a cold day, cold enough to see, so I brought in some cold stuff, liquid nitrogen at a temperature of 79 degrees above absolute zero. If you'll watch the camera up on the left here, I'm going to fill the styrofoam plate with liquefied nitrogen, and I'm wearing some gloves. So now this liquid is approximately 200 degrees Kelvin colder than the room. What's going to happen when I put the balloon into the nitrogen? Well, if you notice what happens, it's kind of wiggly, but I'll wait for it to start to cool down. Come on. Takes a little while for the contact to work. Notice what happens. The star, in this case my balloon, is starting to shrink. Why? Because the air inside the balloon is getting colder. As the temperature drops, its pressure drops. As its pressure drops, the elastic force is larger than needed to confine the balloon, so it can shrink to a smaller size. When I take the balloon out and let it warm back up, it slowly reinflates as the air in the room begins to warm back up. So unfortunately, I can't fully dip this guy, so we'll do this again. The balloon gets loose. Ah, that's better. Notice how the pressure is dropping off inside. The balloon is getting less and less inflated. Now, of course, the other thing is the elastic is changing its properties as it gets cold. But then I let it warm up. The pressure increases, and the balloon achieves a different equilibrium. So I've changed. There's two states of hydrostatic equilibrium. If I make the balloon cold, the pressure drops, and the balloon relaxes into a new hydrostatic equilibrium at a lower size, a smaller size, because it can be confined that way. As the balloon warms up, it, re it, can, it has a higher pressure. The balloon then expands until the elastic forces of the balloon and the air pressure inside achieve a new equilibrium. That exact same thing occurs inside stars. 
If I increase the pressure inside of a star, the star will expand and achieve a new equilibrium at a larger size. If something happens to drop the interior pressure of a star, the star will contract, making it smaller until the pressure and gravity come back into balance. So the change of pressure with temperature is very important. And now I've related temperature, pressure, size of the star, radius squared times temperature to the fourth gives me the luminosity. I have all the physics I need. Now what if I took a, of course a star is not a balloon. It's not simply a uniform pressure, uniform density gas confined by cosmic latex. What it is, is this gas which has all in a big self-gravitating ball. Now as I go deeper and deeper into a star, so let's say I start at the surface of a star and I start working my way to the interior, I'm going to start feeling the weight of all the, air, all the gases on top of me. Just like here on the Earth, I feel a weight of approximately one atmosphere here in Columbus, but if I climb to the top of Mount Everest, 8,000 meters or so above sea level, I've got less air above me. So the air pressure lets off, and it's hard for me to breathe, and I've got to carry supplemental oxygen, unless I'm Reinhold Messner, the insane alpinist, who can do, do Everest without oxygen. What's happening is there's less weight of air above me. Same is true in stars. As I go deeper and deeper into the interior of a star, there's more and more weight of stuff crushing down on top of me. That crush compresses me. The ideal gas law tells me as I compress, I heat up. So greater pressure means greater density and greater temperature. I just simply turn the ideal gas law around. So the consequence is as I actually slice a star in half, that mean density is only a very crude measure of stellar structure. If I look deep inside, what I expect is a hot, dense inner core, a place where the crush of all the gases in the star pressing down upon me, heat and compress me. But outside of that, as I go up, there's less and less stuff above my head, so the envelope will get cooler, lower density, and slightly lower pressure. So clearly there's a little bit of detail going on. I call the core, the inner hot part, the core the outer fluffier part, the envelope. And there's a continuous change of pressure and temperature and density as I go from the very center all the way out to the surface. An example of this is in the sun. In the sun, the core of the sun is a region approximately one quarter of the way out from the middle. The temperature in the middle of the sun is 15 million degrees Kelvin and the density is 150 grams per cc. In the envelope, the radius all the, goes all the way out to the photosphere of the sun to a temperature of 5,800 degrees Kelvin at the photosphere and has a density of 10 to the minus 7, even though its average density, mass divided by volume, is 1.6. This is the core envelope structure of the sun. There's an essential tension inside of stars, a pressure and gra gravity balance. Tip the balance either way and the interior structure of the star changes. That interior structural change is reflected in the surface. The bottom line is internal changes have external consequences, and we'll explore those over the next few lectures. If you haven't turned in your homework, please turn them in up front, and we'll get, get them back to you as soon as we can.